You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Morning, Third family. My name is Elizabeth Hayes, and I am a pastoral intern here at Third. And we're going to hear this morning from Lainey Moore, who's going to read scripture for us. A reading from Galatians, chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 31. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to know who here lost power a couple of weeks ago. Anybody? I know a lot of people around here did, and you know, actually even here at the church we lost power. Um, I was talking to some friends who live in Texas and Tennessee, and they were telling me how they lost power for several days, so many days that they had to clean out their fridge. And you guys know what that's like, right? Like when the power goes out for long enough, you have to sort through and find out what's still good and what's gone bad, and it kind of forces you to dig into the parts of your fridge that you haven't touched in a while. Um, So you start to pull out that uh, ground beef that you thought you were going to use nine months ago, or (laughs) those leftovers that have made their way all the way into the back corner. And when you pull it out of the fridge and you open it up, what do you do to find out if it's good or bad? Take a whiff, right? (laughs) If you've been with us for the last several weeks, then you know that we've been in a sermon series called The Church in the Time of Crisis. And Corey's been talking a lot about how the pandemic has given us an opportunity to evaluate the state of things in our heart, in the church, in our communities. And just like the power going out, uh, all that has happened over the last year is giving us the opportunity to look at some things that have gotten shoved into the back of our hearts. And some of the things that we're pulling out smell like they've gone a little bit rotten. So what do we do when we find the rotten fruit of the flesh in our lives? Anger, bitterness, division, impatience, selfishness. Well, scripture tells us that repentance is the ground of transformation. And we're promised that those who are in Christ will be renewed, that Jesus will do the work of pruning the parts of our lives that are not bearing fruit so that we will look more like him. So we've been looking at the fruits of the spirit with this hope and assurance that God will cultivate fruit in our hearts when we return to him in repentance. And so far we've looked at love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. And today we're going to talk about goodness. Many people in recent years have 
written about how our increasingly secular society has slowly lost a common understanding of what is good. There's a sense that at one time there was a shared set of American values. And maybe you've felt this way or you've heard other people, maybe your parents, your grandparents, lamenting the fact that you used to be able to count on somebody to be honest and on time and careful with their money and fair and so on. Forty years ago, a Scottish philosopher named Alistair MacIntyre wrote a controversial book called After Virtue, and in it he observed the fact that modern life in the West had become characterized by the absence of any coherent moral code, that even then our society had lost any shared understanding of what was good and what was bad. And he saw this as an incredibly dangerous reality. So what do you think? Do you think it's true that we've become a post-virtue society? Well, you might be thinking it's a little naive to say that there ever was any kind of shared public ethic in America. And I think in some ways you're right. It's certainly true that there, ever, there hasn't ever been a, a shared ethic that was shared by all or that was for the good of all. We know, for example, that Freedom and equality might have been considered American virtues, but they weren't virtues that were available to enslaved or indigenous people. And we know, too, that industry and hard work were rewarded and valued for some people, but they were demanded from other people. So maybe it's not that there's some golden age to which we need to return, but I do think that we're living in a really distinct era. And controversial as McIntyre's commentary was, his analysis that we're living in a post-virtue society, I think, has stood the test of time. Today, virtue is increasingly individual and privatized. And instead of taking issue with someone else's actions, you might hear people say things like, you do you and live your truth. It's almost impossible to identify a moral standard to which we as a society believe, that we as a society believe is worth upholding. To hold someone in the public sphere to any sort of virtue today is seen as intolerant or intrusive. So just think for a minute about the most visible and prominent Americans. And now you might say, well, I'm not like them, and that's right, but they do represent us in some way, right? Do we even expect those people to be honest? Do we expect them to treat others with kindness and fairness? And when we find out that they've cheated or lied, do we expect them to face any consequences? Is there any recourse? I know I, for one, I don't expect that. And it's been really alarming for me to realize that there are so few values that we can all agree reflect what it means to do good. So what are we left with? If we don't even know what goodness is, if we aren't bound by some external common morality, what is going to guide our moral decisions? In our post-virtue society, I believe that we're governed by a rule of mistrust and self-preservation. We believe that if we don't look out for number one, then no one's going to. 
And the only way we'll get our due is if we take it. So we cling to the power and the authority and the wealth that we already have and we grasp for more. And it doesn't really matter who loses along the way. Because without a sense of common good, we are left to pursue our own good and the good of those in our tribe. So tribalism, nationalism, and division, they're taking really deep root in our society. And I think that one of the reasons is because we lack any trust in a common morality. We lack a common understanding about what's good and what's bad and and a common commitment to do good for anyone outside of our own tribe. We've become a rootless society, and without roots, any plant will wilt and rot. So what does the Bible mean when it talks about goodness as a fruit of the Spirit? Well, like all of the other fruit that we've talked about, goodness is a quality of God himself. And so to understand what goodness really is, we need to start with him. On the one hand, the Bible talks about God, God's character as good. God is good in the sense that the quality of his character is totally just and righteous and pure. And in a sense, God's goodness is the most foundational quality that describes his character. It's the quality on which all of his other qualities are built. And in fact, one of the first references in scripture that we have to God's goodness comes from Exodus 33, 19. You might remember the story. Um, Moses has been, sorry, God has been calling Moses to lead his people out of Exodus and through the wilderness and into the promised land. And it's been going on for a little while. Moses is starting to get a little bit discouraged. And so he asks God if he can see his glory He says, you've told me your name, but I want to see you in all your fullness so that I can have some assurance that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And so God says, okay. He says, I'll show you my glory. Um, I'll show you my face, but you can't see it without um, some kind of protection. So Moses, you hide behind this rock. And when you're behind this rock, my goodness is going to pass before you. God equates his goodness with the fullness of his glory. God's righteousness, his justice, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness to his promises, all of this encompasses God's goodness. And we also see that when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, he says that only God is totally good. God's goodness sets him apart from anything and anyone else. His goodness is part of his holiness. And in fact, God isn't good because we judge him to be so by some standard that exists outside of himself. Instead, he is the standard of goodness. He determines for us what is good. So God's goodness is defined in scripture on the one hand in terms of his character, but it's also talked about even more often in terms of his actions towards and on behalf of humankind. And we'll see that God's character is perfectly reflected in his actions. He's good through and through. There's an integrity to his goodness. We first see God's actions called good in the very first chapter of the Bible. 
So we have some young people here today, and I wonder if you guys remember in the very first chapter of the Bible when God creates the ocean and the stars, and he stands back and he looks at them, what does he call them? Good. Yeah, he doesn't call them pretty. He doesn't call them really cool. He doesn't call them tasty, right? He calls them good. And then he creates the animals and the fish of the sea. And what does he call them? Good. And then he creates humankind, the crowning glory of his creation. And he stands back and he looks at all of it. And he says, it's very good. Out of God's goodness, which is his very essence, he creates goodness. His goodness generates things which are good. His goodness is creative. And we humans are made after his own image to also be filled up with his goodness and out of his goodness to love the things that he calls good and also to create goodness in the world. But Adam and Eve chose, instead of trusting God's goodness, to determine for themselves what was good. And as silly as it sounds, I think of their choice as sort of like a tree who's planted in the ground deciding to pick itself up out of the ground, that it doesn't need soil and water, but that instead it's going to decide for itself how to grow. And we know what would happen to this tree, right? It certainly wouldn't bear fruit, and really soon it would die. When we choose to do what's good in our own sight rather than trusting God for goodness, we make the same choice. And in doing so, we generate brokenness instead of good. But there's another aspect of God's goodness that I think is also important. If we say that, if, if we, say that we did good by someone, uh, we generally mean that we were fair to them, we upheld our end of the bargain, we paid our dues, we treated them rightly. And if God treated us in this way, he would be good. Our choice to reject his goodness leads to fruitlessness and death, just like it would for that tree. And that's what we deserve. But God's goodness goes beyond fairness and equity because God's goodness is not only creative, it's also redemptive. He can overrule the evil in the bad things that people do with his goodness. He works all things together for good. As Paul says in Romans 8, God's goodness overruling evil doesn't mean that evil never happens. And it doesn't mean that we don't feel the effects of evil, the harm that evil causes in our world. But it does mean that goodness is the trump card. I think of it a little bit like um, the game of Quidditch in the Harry Potter series, which I think comes up a lot in sermon illustrations here. Um, But if you know the series, then you know that um, Quidditch is kind of this crazy game. There are um, some players who are trying to get one kind of ball through a goal, and then there are other magical balls that are trying to knock people off their brooms. Um, and uh, then there are other players who are trying to keep people from getting knocked off their brooms. So the whole game, it's, it's wild and it's crazy, and there are real victories and consequences that happen throughout the game. Um, there are real points that are scored. People really might get hurt. But when one team, at just the right time, catches the golden snitch, 
even if they were losing the whole game, it overrules the struggle of the entire game and they win. God overrules evil. And I wanna take a look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. If you remember the story of Joseph, um, then you'll remember that his brothers had committed great evil against him. They had actually decided to kill him and then they found a little bit of mercy and decided just to sell him into slavery instead um, out of their jealousy for him. And so he gets sold into slavery in Egypt. And here at the end of the book of Genesis, we see, um, we, we meet him again at the end of this long story, which includes um, victories and consequences and real evil and real harm that comes from that evil. And neither Joseph nor God calls the actions of Joseph's brothers good. They're evil, and Joseph says so. But God overruled that evil, redeeming it for good. Goodness is not about calling what is evil good, but God's goodness overcomes evil for the sake of restoration. So if goodness is about overcoming evil for the sake of restoration, then the most powerful picture we have of God's goodness is the gospel. Goodness reflects the dynamic of the cross and the resurrection. Chris Wright says that the cross is the ultimate expression of the goodness of God, and the resurrection proved its victory. Goodness overcomes evil. So let's take a look back at the passage that Lainey read for us so well. When Jesus calls us to do good to those who hate us, he's calling us to walk in his footsteps by his spirit in overcoming evil with good for the sake of restoration. And in the face of a culture that doesn't even know how to define what is good and for whom the highest good is self-protecting, Jesus offers us a completely alternative image here. Instead of securing our own good and the good of our tribe, he says to do good even to those who hate you. He defines goodness not just as what gives an advantage to me and my people, but even more so as that which disadvantages me for the sake of others. Here Jesus says that doing good means being kind to people who only want bad things for you, praying for those who harm you. It means that if somebody mistreats them, mistreats you, you don't retaliate or seek revenge. It means that if somebody takes what's yours, you offer them more. If somebody asks you for something, you give it to them before you judge whether they're worthy to receive it. It means that you don't even demand that to which you're entitled. Now for any culture, what Jesus proposes here is remarkable, but for ours, it is absolutely revolutionary. Jesus's, if Jesus's words make you feel uncomfortable, then I think you're hearing him correctly. His words are meant to confront and challenge each of us. But I do think that it's important that we stop here and recognize that these very words of Jesus have in many cases been wielded as a weapon. They've been used against victims of abuse and oppression to coerce 
people into believing that God wants them to accept the violence and the harm and the injustice that's being inflicted upon them. For some of us, the idea of turning the other cheek is a metaphor. For others, they bear in their bodies and their souls the scars of the type of violence that Jesus is describing here. So I wanna be loud and clear and say that there is nothing more abhorrent and more contrary to the gospel than to use the words of Jesus to force a vulnerable person into submission. And as we've seen, to call what is evil good is the opposite of goodness. So if you find yourself um, in a place where you're being harmed or if you're in trouble or if you're in a vulnerable position, I really wanna encourage you to reach out to a member of the pastoral team or of the staff here because we wanna be able to get you the help and the resources that you need. But even if you're just in a situation that feels complicated, that feels like, I don't know what it would mean to turn the other cheek in this situation. Again, I'd encourage you to reach out to somebody. It might be a trusted friend, it might be a member of the staff here, but we'd love to pray for you. And I think it's important to note that while sometimes goodness does mean that those in positions of power and strength absorb the injustices and maybe even the violence of others, goodness does not always mean acquiescence. There's a strength in the kind of goodness that Jesus describes here because of its source. Luke writes in Acts 10 that Jesus went about doing good as if His entire life, wherever he went, he went around creating goodness and restoring brokenness. And so in his life, we have this fully orbed picture of what the Bible means when it says to do good, to do good. And sometimes goodness in Jesus's life looked like him serving his disciples by washing their feet, laying aside his authority and his power and submitting himself to those who are beneath him. But other times, goodness for Jesus looked like calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs or overturning tables in the temple. Goodness isn't necessarily rolling over and acquiescing to evil. Goodness might look like standing up and confronting things that are not good. But no matter whether it looks like submission or standing up or something else altogether, biblical goodness is active. The goodness that Jesus calls us to walk in is self-sacrificing, it's uniting, it's repairing, it's healing. It seeks the shalom of others and of the community above that of the individual. There might be nothing more countercultural and yet fundamental to the Christian life than this radical concept of goodness. So we found our way to some understanding of biblical goodness. We've said that goodness describes both character and action, and that when we are rooted in God, who's the standard of all that's good, his spirit flows out of us in a way that creates goodness and restores brokenness. So goodness is first and most essentially a gift of God to us. But as Corey has reminded us several times, the fruit of the spirit, including goodness, is both gift and task. 
Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In our sin, we cannot be called good apart from God. But here Paul's remind, Paul reminds us that in Christ, we have the capacity and the potential for goodness. He says that in Christ, we're actually created anew for good. It's, one of, it's a task that is essential to our new life in Christ. So let's talk for just a few minutes about um, some practices that can help us cultivate goodness in our lives. We said on Ash Wednesday that in the Christian life, the way up to change and transformation and newness and growth is actually down through acknowledging our failure and returning to God in repentance. And goodness is not something that we can grasp on our own. And in fact, if we try, then we go the way of Adam and Eve, and it, it actually is the opposite of good. Instead, goodness shines in us. Think about Moses, his face after he saw the glory, the goodness of God. It shone. Goodness in our lives is born out of our experience of God's glory, and then it becomes visible to others. So the first practice to cultivate goodness is to name the ways that we are not good and to invite God to show us more of his goodness. In this Lenten season, we have several opportunities to help us do that. Um, Our Lenten prayer guide is guiding us individually in prayer and repentance and returning to God. And we're also gathering as a community at 7 a.m. over Zoom on weekday mornings um, to pray together. And if you haven't joined us, I really encourage you to do so. I think that there's something really valuable about joining together as a community in repentance and prayer. So the first practice is to name the ways that we're not good. And the second is to walk in good works. Paul talks in this Ephesians passage that we just read about walking in good works. And I want you to think for just a second about the places in your day-to-day life where you walk, not where you drive, um, but where you walk. So that's probably most importantly your house or your office. You might walk around your neighborhood, you might walk with your kids to the park, Um, you might walk around your school, might walk around a grocery store. When Paul talks about walking in good works, he's giving us an image of the everyday, the mundane, the down to earth, and that's where most of the good that God is inviting us into will happen. So I wonder what would change if you viewed your daily life, your work, your school, your time spent with family, even the things that you do to relax, as opportunities that God has prepared for you to walk in goodness. So the second practice to help us cultivate goodness is is simply creating space in our daily lives to look around and notice. In your everyday walking, what would it look like to practice looking Where might you find brokenness or evil or need? And 
if when you look around while you're walking, you don't see brokenness or need, I wonder if you would consider what might be distracting you from seeing those things. Our lives are built to buffer us from brokenness, right? But if we know that God wants to bring goodness to broken places and to use us to do so, then we can look at evil without turning away. And when you do notice brokenness, you can simply stop and ask God, what would you have me do? Practicing creating that space, even if it's just a few seconds, to ask God that question, what would you have me do? And attune yourself to hear the answer can help us to cultivate the work of goodness, creating goodness and restoring brokenness in our world. So to conclude, we've said that goodness describes both character and action. And we've said that God is the standard of what is good. And when we're rooted in him, his spirit flows out of us in a way that creates goodness and restores brokenness. Chris Wright says that good people don't always worry about what's strictly fair, but instead they like to err on the side of generosity and kindness. Isn't it true that God hasn't dealt fairly with us? Instead, he has taken our evil on himself, and through the cross and the resurrection, he's overruled it so that goodness can be born in our hearts. Let's walk in that goodness. Let's pray. God, you are a good father. And we praise you for the goodness that you have shown us. And that in your goodness, you've prepared good for us to walk in. We cause goodness to grow in our lives, in our church, and in our communities. In the name of Jesus. Amen.